Hey, good morning, Northridge. I'm Jason, and I'm so excited to meet you guys. Really, uh, very pumped. I've heard about your church for a long time, not just in the Detroit area, but around the country. People love to celebrate the good things that happen through Northridge Church. And I'm, like, I'm really glad to finally like, be here and see in person what all of this is about. Uh, I, I know the, the guest speaker thing can be a bit like a blind date. <laughs> kind of awkward. Like, I hope that you like me. I hope I like you. You know? <laughs> But you look good, so that's a good start. So the thing about it, though, is we have to, we have to begin with a difficult word, uh, which is kind of awkward, but, but I wouldn't have integrity if I didn't just start here. I, I said that people talk about you, you have this great reputation, not just in Detroit, but around the, the country, and that's true, mostly. And just to be more direct about it, your pastor, Brad, has this great reputation, mostly. But there's this rumor swirling that there's a little bit of untruth that has slipped into his teaching and slipped into this church. And I wouldn't have integrity if I didn't just set the record straight about what is true about God and the world that we live in in this very particular way. So I came from South Bend, Indiana, to clarify for the people of God at Northridge Church that God's favorite team in the world is the Fighting Irish of the University of Notre Dame. <laughs> There's got to be like two of you that are with me on that. Come on. Right there. I got a couple of hands. Yeah, you, you and my brave friends here. That's awesome. I'm just kidding. I'm really, really grateful to be here. And what better way for us to get started than just get to know each other a little bit. Uh, I'm from South Bend, Indiana. I grew up there most of my life. South Bend? Yeah, awesome. Right on. Yeah, you and me. Um, and anyway, I spent 13 years at this really wonderful church called Granger Community Church, where I did a little bit of everything over the years. And then uh, a little over a year ago, started setting out on this brand new adventure that God had called me to, which is to put a new church right in the heart of the city of South Bend. Now, South Bend and Detroit share a little bit of story, because like Detroit, South Bend's an automobile city. Uh, in South Bend, it was the Studebaker family who started with wagons. And around the turn of the 1900s, they heard about these crazy people in Detroit who were making horseless wagons, otherwise known as cars. And so they turned the Studebaker Wagon Company into the Studebaker Car Company. And from then until the 1960s, it was the economic engine that drove everything in South Bend. Employed 30,000 people in a town with like 100,000 people. So in the 1960s, when the lights went out on Studebaker, the lights kind of went out on our city. And for the last 40 years or so, it's been a really challenging era for the city of South Bend. But in the last 10 years, there's been a ton of new energy, a ton of revitalization. Um, a lot of different factors are coming together, and we are so thrilled as a church that we get to plant ourselves right in the heart of all of that and give our love and our life and our energy to the good and the well-being of the city of South Bend. And get this, two weeks ago, we just had our first Sunday service in our new home, which is the actual factory floor of the Studebaker Car Factory, the building that's been there since the 1940s. Yeah, isn't that cool? We're so... So grateful that God's opened that door for us and that we get to do ministry right there. Uh, so my heart is a little bit there this morning, but I'm so glad I get to be with you guys. And I want to tell you a story. I want to take you back to the college years for me. Uh, right after high school, I go to college, and I'm mostly really excited the way that you are when you go to college, and there's new things and new friends waiting for you. But the problem for me was there wasn't just new things and new friends waiting for me, but there was some of my past that was holding on to me that really came screaming at me as I was turning the, door, or turning the corner from high school to college. See, uh, when I was little, uh, there were just a few experiences that were really, really difficult, uh, really traumatizing and painful, and they were the kind of experiences that a young brain tucks away because that mind may not be ready to handle all of that. 
so they, the memories of those things, they live in like a bit of a lockbox for a long time. And then sometimes for some of us, what happens is as you're going from childhood to adulthood, something, it's like your, your mind or your body or somehow knows that it's time to face some of that stuff. So that stuff breaks open in my life just as I'm going away to college. And for the next four and a half years, I have this debilitating struggle with depression. It would come and go. I mean, it was always there a little bit, but it, it would press in with a, a really painful wave, and then it would back off for a bit. And I tried working on it, tried sorting it out, tried going to see a counselor, did all the right things, but it was like one step forward, two steps back. Like one step forward, two steps back. So I'd, I'd work on it for a little while, and then things would get really, really dark, and then I would back off. And then I'd work on it for a little while, and things would get really, really dark, and I'd back off. Uh, it got to the point where, like, I'm sitting in class, and for no reason around me or, like, like for no provocation except for this struggle that I'm having with, with grief and depression and sadness and, and fear, I, I would just start sobbing, like, like, like in a really boring class, like philosophy. Like, I'd just, just start weeping, and I have to leave the classroom. I remember one day I'm driving in my car down the road by the mall in South Bend, and same thing, this wave just hits me so hard. I'm just driving a normal day, and I start weeping so, so heavily that I have to pull my car over because I can't see through my tears. And I wake up day after day after day, and I keep asking the same question. Every day I, I wake up, and, and the question I ask, is it still there? And then there's a Tuesday in October of my fifth year of undergrad. Don't do the math. <laughs> And I wake up on that Tuesday in October and I ask the same question I'd asked other, every other day, is it still there? And the answer was the same. Yeah, that cloud, that wave, that depression, that grief, it's still there. But on that day, I just felt like I couldn't do another day like that. Now, uh, this is a moment in my life where some strange grace met me, and I don't understand why not everybody experiences the same thing in moments like that, but I feel like that moment could have gone a couple different ways. But the way that it did go was me uh, walking out to my car on campus, putting the car in drive, and to be honest, from that moment to when I arrived at the place I was going to, it was like autopilot. I didn't make a de decision to get there. I don't remember knowing where I was going. I just know that I put my car in drive, and a few minutes later, I find myself pulling into a mental health facility in South Bend. I walk in, and there's a front desk lady. She's kind of cheery. She's like, hey, can I help you? And I'm just like, <laughs> like just an explosion of grief and mental anguish. Just, and they're like, oh, okay, let's like take you back to a room and talk for a minute. And I end up checking myself in, and I spend 10 days there. And uh, the, the thing that happened in that moment, it's like this wave that had been chasing me that I was trying to stay ahead of. I finally stopped running, and this wave, it just overtook me. I mean, for three days, like, all I did was cry really hard for three days. And the strange thing was that the same moment uh, that was the wave overtaking me also turned out to be the wave finally passing me by. Like, like finally some of this grief just passing through my system. And so, in fact, after three days or so of just sobbing, the clouds actually started to part in my life for the first time in, in many years. I was really grateful for that. Now, things actually got kind of awkward at that point because all of a sudden there I am in a mental health facility with people who are depressed and I'm not depressed. And that can be kind of weird, you know? Like, the thing is, even the doctors are depressed in there. Like, you may not know that if you've not spent time in a psych ward, but the doctors are kind of in rough shape too. I remember there's one guy, he's sitting on the edge of my bed, the doctor, and he's like, are you having any suicidal thoughts today? And I, I wanted to be like, no, are you? 
you want to talk about it, buddy? <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't say that. So I feel a lot better, actually, and I, I come out of that place, and I'm sort of moving on to a different kind of life, one that I hadn't known in quite a while, and I'm really grateful for that. But then there's another thing that enters in. After the hospital, after the clouds part, I start getting angry, confused, frustrated. I start reflecting on this difficult question, which is like, why, why did God have to let it hurt so bad? Why, why did God let it hurt so bad? I mean, I did everything right, you guys. I went to a Christian college for Pete's sake. Like, my buddies from high school, they go to IU, they're getting hammered on the weekends. I'm in the prayer chapel on the weekend, you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to the counselor, I'm reading the Bible, and I'm praying every day for like four and a half years. Like, could we just deal with this? Why did it have to hurt so bad? There was embarrassment involved. So I, I go to this Christian college, and I'm the chapel band piano player. Impressed, I know you are. Uh, so every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for four and a half years, Jay's at the piano in front of the entire student body for chapel. And then there's a Wednesday in October when he's not. And 2,000 of my closest friends are asking, where's Jay? And then they start telling each other, well, haven't you heard he's in a psych ward? I know, like, what do you do with that? Your entire college campus is talking about you having this mental health struggle and there's stigma there and it's embarrassing and it's not very comfortable. So I start wrestling with this one question, why did God have to let it hurt so bad? And that evolves, where was God? Why was he so far away? It evolves a little further, maybe like, is there something about me? Some reason he couldn't keep company with me? I, I, I latch onto a prayer from the scriptures. There's a, a book of the Bible in the Old Testament called the Psalms. You've probably heard some of these. You might have read them yourselves. These are prayers from the Israelite people, songs and prayers, and some of it's really hopeful, but some of it's kind of angry. Some of it wrestles with these feelings, and I actually find one of these psalms that echoes everything I'm feeling. I'm, I'm using this translation of the scripture called the message, which I really liked because it used very vivid and, and like real human language for these things that are being communicated in the Hebrew and the Greek, and so I latch onto this this sort of paraphrase translation, which uses other words that I hadn't heard before in the Psalms. And I find this one and I latch onto it. And I wanna share with you this prayer from the message translation of the Psalms that just like, this was how I was feeling about God. Here, here's how this goes, a little bit of it. God, God, why did you dump me miles from nowhere? Doubled up with pain, I call to God all the day long. No answer, nothing. I keep at it all night, tossing and turning. And you, are you indifferent, above it all, leaning back on the cushions of Israel's praise? We know you were there for our parents. They cried for your help and you gave it. They trusted and lived a good life. But here I am, a nothing, a, an earthworm, something to step on to squash. Everyone pokes fun at me. They make faces at me. They shake their heads. Let's see how God handles this one. Since God likes him so much, let God help him. And to think that you were midwife at my birth, setting me at my mother's breasts. When I left the womb, you cradled me. Since the moment of my birth, you've been my God, but then you moved far away and trouble moved in next door. Like I grabbed that scripture. I was like, I was like see God, even your own book says sometimes you're a jerk. Yeah, we can laugh now. It wasn't funny at the time. And there's this deep pain that I started feeling. And I'm wrestling with why is God so far away when I needed him? Why, why did he just like forget about me when I kept crying out? I felt so abandoned. Abandonment turns inward and you start to wonder, what is it about me? Like, why me? 
Maybe I'm the reason he needed to be very far away, right? Now, now this, this experience, it's like a, a knot, right? Like all these different things tied together, depression, fear, anger, abandonment, all that stuff, it gets tied into a knot. And, and to me, a word for that knot, for all of that, for wondering where God is and what's wrong with me, a word for that is shame. We find all these feelings throughout the scriptures. In, in the Psalms, you find these wrestling matches, what's wrong with me, what's wrong with God. Like in the Psalms, check this out. There's a German Bible scholar uh, named Gunkel. You should write that down. You're gonna drop this at a dinner party sometime and blow people's minds, okay? Gunkel, German Bible scholar, and he's working through the book of Psalms and he's asking like, what are the different kinds of Psalms that we see here? And Google creates these categories that to this day are the sort of consensus from Bible scholars. And in the Psalms we have prayers of praise, which are like, God, you're awesome. It's pretty simple, right? Praise, God, you're awesome. And then in the Psalms we have prayers of thanksgiving, which are, God, you're awesome because you did something so great, because you came through when I asked you to, so thank you for doing that. So praise, thanksgiving, and then you have psalms of lament. Lament are the ones that cry out, God, where are you? What's wrong with you? Or worse yet, what's wrong with me? The psalms of lament, they, they hang their head, they bleed, they ache, they scream. And what's interesting is if you go through the book of psalms and you sort of add up all of the psalms that generally fit the category of praise and put them in a pile, and you add up all the psalms that generally fit the category of thanksgiving and put them in a pile, and you add up all the psalms that generally fit the category of lament and you put them in a pile, guess which pile is the biggest? Lament. This grappling, this wrestling, this aching, this screaming, this God, where are you? Why are you not here? This, might I be the reason that you're not here? It's, it's something the scriptures wrestle with deeply. In fact, it shows up in the very, very first story in the Bible about what it means to be human. Some of you know some of this story. We read about Adam and Eve who are put in the Garden of Eden. Now, Eden, by the way, it means literally the, the place of abundance or fullness or plenty. Like, I like to picture Whole Foods on somebody else's credit card, <laughs> right? Just grab all that organic goodness, you know what I'm saying, right? This place of abundance or fullness or plenty. And we read early on in the story of Adam and Eve that there they are in that garden and it says they're naked and they feel no shame. So we're walking around Whole Foods naked. Now don't go quite that far with it. But think about what that means for a moment. To be naked is to be exposed. It's for the most intimate and vulnerable parts of ourselves to be uncovered, right? And we read that Adam and Eve, they begin their story exposed, out there, and they feel no shame about that. But then the story turns quickly, right? Because God has told them there's this tree with this one fruit that you are not allowed to eat. Everything else, all this abundance, all this fullness is for you, but not the fruit of this tree. And there's a moment for Adam and Eve where there's what God has said, don't eat this, this fruit, and there's what they see, which is that looks pretty good. And a tug of war is created for them between those two things, right? There's, there's what is right, which is to not eat the fruit, but there's what they wanted, which is to eat the fruit. And a, a tug of war exists there for them, right? And in that battle, they, they fail. And it's interesting. So right after they eat the fruit that they were told not to eat, we, we see them covering themselves up. The, the first thing that happens is they see themselves differently. All of a sudden, they want to cover themselves up. They want to cover up their nakedness. And so they do that. And then they hear God walking in the garden there, and they run and hide from that God. This is shame in the very first pages of the story about what it means to be human. This story knows what it's like to be you and me. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that? 
So for a minute, we should talk about shame and the way it wars against us, the way it works, and what we can do about it. Three things you need to know about shame. First thing is this, shame is a liar. Shame is a liar. Think about Adam and Eve for a second. First of all, shame lies to them and takes something good about them and tells them it's bad. So for them to be naked in this story is simply, right, for what God has made to be seen, right? I mean, that's the logic of this. It's simply for what God has made to be seen. But they immediately decide they got to cover it up. It's like shame will take a good thing about you and tell you it's a bad thing. It'll lie to you like that. Like, we could just think of a couple of quick examples from the world that we live in today. Like, maybe you're an introvert in an extrovert's world. There's a lot about, like, the world in the year 2017, America in the year 2017, social media in the year 2017. We celebrate extroverted personalities in extroverted ways, right? But you, you may not be, like, the life of the party, but you are this, this quiet contemplative who goes to deep and profound places because of how you've been wired. And yet you've just been razzed on, given a hard time in the locker room, in the hallway, at work, because you're not the alpha male and you're not the extroverted one who sort of like makes everything happen socially. And somewhere in there, you might have heard the lie that it's not good to be you. That it's not good to be you. How about this one? Maybe you're a woman with leadership gifts in a world that often tells women who are trying to lead to sit down and shut up. And somewhere in that, you've heard the lie that it's not good to be you. And that lie, it, it, it makes us deaf to that first word that God speaks over creation, over humanity, when he says, it is good. It is so good to have humanity in this world. That's the first word that God speaks in the scriptures about this creation. But we can't hear it when shame is yelling at us, telling us it's not good to be us. Or shame will lie to you. And shame will take a bad thing that you have done, a disobedient moment. It'll take the thing that you have done, and it will use it to tell you who you are. Shame will take the failure, the pattern of addiction, the brokenness, the thing that you were struggling with, the moment in your history when you did the wrong thing or the pattern that keeps showing up in your everyday life. It'll take the bad things that you have done, and it will use them to tell you who you are. But it's lying to you. Shame's a liar. And those lies, they have consequences. The second thing you need to know about shame that lies to us, those lies have consequences. Here's the second thing. Shame is toxic. Shame is toxic. It will destroy us. There's a researcher named Brene Brown, and she does this work academically. She and her team, they study things like shame, vulnerability. And in their research, they have discovered that shame empirically correlates to some really destructive stuff. She says that where you find shame in the driver's seat of a person's life, you're gonna find these other things. Addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. And where you find addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders, you are likely to find shame driving those things. Shame is toxic. I read that list and I think of a story that I read growing up and a couple of characters within it. Anybody, anybody ever read uh, The Little Prince? Yeah, a couple of us. This is um, a peculiar little book written by a Frenchman decades ago that's been translated into like 40 or 50 languages. It's the kind of book that might look very, very simple on the surface of it if you flip through it. But there's some deep and profound stuff happening. 
And this little prince, he travels around the galaxy or the universe or whatever, and he lands on different planets where he meets different characters. And I read that list of toxic stuff from shame, and I can't help but think of this guy. This is the drunkard or the tippler. And uh, the, the little prince lands on this guy's planet, and he encounters this man drinking too much, and he asks him some questions. He starts by saying, why do you drink so much? And the man says, I drink to forget. And the prince presses further on and says, well, what are you trying to forget? And the man says, I'm trying to forget that I'm ashamed. And the prince asks one more question. He says, well, what are you ashamed of? And he says, I'm ashamed that I'm a drunk. Do you hear the black hole in that? How that cycle will just suck you further and further in? Shame is toxic. One more thing you need to know about shame. Shame is in the system. Shame is in the system. Here, here's what I mean. Shame's not just something that I carry within me or you carry within you, like an inner reality. Shame is an interpersonal reality, too. Shame can be the operating system of social structures. So, like, like there are offices where shame is the operating system. That's how people are kept in line. That's how the hierarchy is preserved. There are schools. There are teams where shame is the operating system. There are families where shame is the operating system. There are even churches, religious structures, where shame is the operating system, trying to keep people in line, trying to keep people under control. Shame can live in the system. It can be directed toward one another. It can be put on you from outside of yourself. You know what else lives? Comment, comment uh, sections online. That's a shame system. Have you ever read those things? Shame can live in the system. Have you ever been shamed? Have you ever had anybody like put shame on you? I can think of a lot of these examples in my life. Let me tell you one briefly. A couple years ago, I ended up in Sri Lanka through a long story that I won't get into. I mean, I, I meant to go there. I didn't just wake up one day there. But So I'm in Sri Lanka, and I'm a, a part of this conference of young peacemakers from 16 conflict zones around the world. This is El Salvador, Colombia, where gangs tend to run things, East African countries, the Middle East, places where the Taliban is in charge. And these are young 18 to 25-year-old leaders, and, and they've gathered from all these different countries because they're trying to lead the youth of their nations to, toward better futures. They're trying to say, you don't have to give your life to the Taliban's version of our future. There's, there's a better way here. So we're there with all these different young leaders. We're trying to help, equip, inspire, encourage them. And I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do there. A friend of mine invited me. I'm really grateful to be a part of it, but I'm not sure how to help. And then he tells me one thing I can do. He says, oh, you know what? The former chief justice of the Sri Lankan Supreme Court is coming to our conference tomorrow and in front of all these delegates from all these countries. How about you interview her about what she did to help put Sri Lanka back together after our civil war in the 80s? I said, sure, got it. <laughs> no, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm nervous, I'm scared. I'm trying to figure out, I don't know law, I don't know Sri Lankan history, I don't know this woman's career very much, so I start Googling like crazy trying to figure everything out. And then I also discover that her name is challenging. It's like 17 syllables, several of which my Indiana like mouth has never had to produce before, those sounds, right? So I'm learning about her career, and I'm trying to learn her name, and I go to one of the Sri Lankans on the team that's running the conference, and I use my, my phone to video them saying her name like five times over so I can rehearse this. And just as I'm getting stressed about it, the conference organizer tells me, oh, one more thing about the justice that you need to know. She's a bit difficult. 
Thank you. Great. What does that mean? So I start trying to learn her name and learn her career and prepare for this hour-long interview in front of all these delegates. And then the day comes when she shows up for the conference, and we have a little luncheon that we're going to have before we go out to the big room, and it's me and the justice and the conference organizers and some of the team there. And guys, she comes to the building, and have you ever, like, seen when a person's ego can enter the room before they do? You know what I mean? Like, like a mile away, like, you can just pick up the attitude on this lady. And so she, she walks in, and I'm getting more nervous as I try to interact with her. And the thing is, even though I've literally stayed up nights watching this video trying to learn how to say her name, I still haven't got it quite down. So I'm thinking, this is going to be a meltdown if on stage I get this wrong, and I start trying to do preemptive damage control. So we're there at the luncheon before the conference event with the team and the justice, and I just like... I like curtsy, I like demur, defer, do everything I can, you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm, I'm saying, Madam Justice, we are so honored to have you here. We are so grateful that you would give some of your time to us and to these delegates. And I, as a dumb, stupid American from the West that I know is the reason everything's wrong in the world, I'm here to just apologize in advance for the fact that I've been working very, very hard to learn the pronunciation of your name. But I just, I want you to know that I have been struggling with it a little bit, but I've been working so hard. And, I, and she cuts me off in front of the team and she says, how rude. I said, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Madam Justice. And she says, how rude. It's very rude not to learn a person's name. And I said, oh, oh no, um, Madam Justice. I'm trying to explain that I've been working very, very hard. Because I agree. I do think it's rude not to learn a person's name. Which is why I haven't slept in three nights trying to learn your name. And, I, and I'm just trying to like, explain this. And she cuts me off again. And she says, how rude. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you that you wouldn't learn a person's name? And then I'm not, I'm not making this up. She says, what's your name? And I say, Jason Miller. And she says, Jason Miller, do you see how easy that was for me? What's wrong with you? Why can't you learn my name? And I realized she is actively shaming me, right? And this is like weaponized shame, right? She's just like firing it at me. Shame, shame, shame. Have you, have you ever been shamed? I mean, this was a fairly overt example in a setting where it wasn't that bad because all of my teammates knew the real problem her was some of her attitude, not me, right? But there are more subtle and insidious ways that shame will get put on you. It might be part of the script in your family, your workplace, your religious background, and it was so present that it became like wallpaper and you didn't even notice it was there, but it was. It's in the system. Shame is messy stuff. It'll lie to you. It's toxic. Sometimes it lives in the system. So it begs this question, like, what do we do about it? Whether it's me and I'm out of the hospital and I feel a lot better, but now I have these new dark things that are bubbling up inside. Why was God so far away? Or maybe it's you or someone you love, someone you care about. What do we do about it? Well, there's good news from Brene Brown, the same team that does the research, the same team that discovered those toxic things that correlate with shame, they proposed an experiment that they worked on. They imagined that, that, metaphorically, it's like if you have a Petri dish in a laboratory, right? And rather than putting a, a virus in that, the pathogen that you put in the Petri dish is shame. And then they ask, is there anything else that you could introduce to the Petri dish? Anything that you could add to the shame that would reliably kill it, that would reliably get rid of it? And they do their research, and they've discovered one uh, really important thing. This is how they say it. Shame doused with empathy dies. 
Shame doused with empathy dies. It's as if part of what gives shame its power is that, that it whispers to you and it says, and you're the only one. Everybody else is fine. Nobody else struggles with that. You're the only one. Everybody else is getting on with their life. Nobody has that problem. You're the only one. Nobody else will understand. God will certainly not understand. It's like that's part of how shame becomes so powerful. And the researchers discovered that shame doused with empathy. When the voice comes to you that says, oh, no, I understand. I'm with you. I've been there, too. That that's the voice that breaks shame. Remember that, that psalm I, I read to you, the, the angry language, God, you're a jerk. Well, I, I, I returned to that psalm again and again in that season of life. I was nursing the wound. I was nursing the grudge, if you will, right? And as I was doing that, I was getting angrier at God, but I was getting more afraid of myself and wanting to cover up because why would he be so far away unless there's something wrong with me? That, that would be the only thing I could think of that would explain like, why he just was nowhere near me when I needed him most. So I'm working my way through the psalm. I write it out in my journal. But there's something familiar about it that I can't quite put my finger on. Something about the language in the psalm, but I didn't recognize it because it was that paraphrase from the message that sounded a little different from the Bible that I grew up with. And there's something familiar about the number of the psalm because the psalms, like chapters in the Bible, have numbers. And there's something about the number of the psalm that I'm thinking, why does that seem familiar? And so after weeks of nursing this grudge and growing angrier at God and more afraid of myself, uh, I do what every responsible student does when they're researching, and I Google it. And I simply Googled the citation, Psalm 22.1. And when I Googled it, the first line of the more traditional reading of the psalm popped up on my screen, and it knocked me over. Because the first line of Psalm 22, this, this lament of mine, it's often rendered like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And maybe that sounds familiar to you, too. It's familiar to us, not just because it's in the Psalms, but because when God, compelled by love, wrapped himself up in flesh and blood <coughs> and came to walk these dusty roads with us, when God came to know what it feels like to be betrayed and abandoned, when the love of God wrapped in flesh and blood was betrayed, tortured, condemned to death, and crucified in the most painful of ways, when God came compelled by love, he put those very same words on his lips, and it's Jesus on the cross, at his moment of suffering, cries out himself and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it just knocked me over, you guys. Like, like the very prayer that I had latched onto to say, God, you're so far away from us. You don't understand. There must be something wrong with me that you would abandon us like this. That very prayer is the prayer that Jesus prays, that when God comes to walk in flesh, he knows that experience too. That, that like, God isn't, trying to understand why it is that you and I struggle from a distance. God isn't trying to imagine what that tug of war feels like between what's right and what we want 
between what God says and what we see. He's not trying to imagine what that could feel like. God's not trying to imagine what it feels like to be wounded in this world, to grieve in this world. God's not trying to imagine what it would feel like. God is like the definition of empathy. The God revealed in Jesus has walked all of that, knows all of it. This is why the scriptures can say what they do about this God who comes in Jesus. Like in the book of Hebrews, this is uh, reflecting on what it means that God has come through Christ. Chapter two, for surely it's not angels God helps, but Abraham's descendants. And in the logic of this letter, that's you and me. Uh, for this reason, he had to be like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Or chapter four, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Don't you dare hang your head so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Or how about chapter 12? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its what? Scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, you never have to wonder if God understands. God is not understanding our struggle, our distance, our fear, our feeling of abandonment. Hypothetically, theoretically, vicariously, metaphorically, metaphysically, God walked around in a body and felt how these bodies pull us apart. God walked around in a body and knows the dark nights where you wonder if even God has turned his back because maybe there's something so wrong with you that he couldn't come to you. And he says that has never been the case. He says, I love you. It compelled me to show up. Now, I don't know where the dark places are in your story. I don't know if it's past or present or future. I don't know if shame has been in the driver's seat or the back seat or somewhere near you. I don't know if it's you who needs to hear this message or somebody that you love. But we never have to wonder if God is with us in the darkest moments, just pick the circumstance that from the outside looking in would tell us that God is far away and flip that thing on its head. Because if God has prayed from a cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then there is no experience that could tell us he is far away. Not even the experience that feels like the abandonment of God. When I talked to your pastor, Brad, about coming to be here, he said, would you share something unforgettable that God has done in your life, something he's taught you? And this experience, the depression, the sadness, the embarrassment, the shame, I wouldn't trade it for anything because ultimately what it led me to was an unforgettable, like a branding on my heart that God is never turning his back on us. And there's nothing about us, past, present, or future, that could cause him to do anything but love us. And maybe that word love is the word that you need to hear today. So uh, in a moment, I'm gonna lead us through just a very simple moment of reflection. And then I'll pray, and we'll be on our way. 
Uh, but I have a feeling that for some who are here, um, God has just begun to open something up and you wanna stick with that a little bit longer. Maybe you wanna pray with someone. There'll be a prayer team here after the service who would love to pray with you right at the front of the stage. Uh, if you don't wanna do that, but you do want some follow-up, you could grab uh, the Connect card that's uh, in your program that you got. You could give your information there and you could just explain a little bit of what's going on. And then when you leave this space today, there'll be boxes that you can put it uh, in on your way out. If you're, uh, if you're watching online, uh, there's a what next button that you could use and somebody will follow up with you. But now I, I just wanna uh, help us reflect for a moment because I don't know about you, I know for me, like when church is done, it's like I grab my phone and there's like 17 notifications, you know, like maybe there's kids waiting for you, you're gonna grab them, put them in the car, go eat and then get ready for the week. Things get very busy very quickly again, don't they? So if you're willing, I know we're just getting to know each other, but trust me with this. Um, what I'd like to do is just invite us to close our eyes where you are, be comfortable. And I just wanna throw a couple of questions at you to help you listen a little more, to help you reflect. And then when I'm done with that, we'll stand to our feet and I'll offer a benediction, just a, a good word. But uh, let's begin with this reflection. So if you'd like, uh, you can close your eyes. Sometimes it helps me to put my feet flat on the floor and my hands on my knees. And um, as you do that, let me just encourage you first, as you close your eyes, just breathe really deeply. And now, knowing that we are held by the great love of our God, let me just ask you a couple of questions to chew on. Is there anything that you've been hiding? Is there anything that you've been running from? Is there something that you have buried, tucked away, that you hope won't come to the surface? Is there some pattern that you are stuck in and you think, boy, if anyone knew, There's some fear there that the people in your life or the God of your life might run away if they only knew. Is there some frustration with God that you need to name? I find that we give ourselves much less permission than the Bible does to express what's real about our lives and our experience of God. Some protest you need to lodge. Maybe the most powerful healing thing in your life would be to finally name uh, the difficult thing that you've experienced with God. And as you hold those moments in mind, I wonder if there's anybody else you know or love and you've watched them struggling and you think the first thing they needed was be to, told, to be told to get their act together to shape up, they needed some tough love, but maybe what they most desperately needed was to know that God is with them saying, I understand, and to have a friend, a family member who embodies that for them and says, I'm with you and I'm not going anywhere. As you hold all of that in your mind, would you just remember that it's love that compels God to seek out Adam and Eve in the garden. It's love that compels God to give us a Bible with these prayers that cry, that scream, because he knows it is hard down here sometimes. It is love that compels God to show up in the sun, to wrap himself up in flesh and blood and walk this difficult road. It's love that compels God to go to a cross 
where he would suffer and be abandoned and himself even cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's the same power of that love, the love of the Father that raises Jesus to new life and promises us the same future if we trust him. And now uh, I want to look you in the eye as I speak one more word of love. So if you're able, you want to stand to your feet? Uh, at South Bend City Church, at our church in South Bend, we, we call this a benediction. We didn't come up with that word, obviously. <laughs> but it's just become a really meaningful way for us to look one another in the eye and bless each other in the name of Christ before we go. So Northridge Church, let me look at you as I say this. May you know the God who is with you in the darkest possible moments. And if you can't see God in those moments, may you keep looking at Jesus because I believe he will reveal himself there. And may that encounter with the love of God who has never abandoned us, may it send us into the world and into the lives of those we love, looking for all the moments that we could stand side by side and say to one another, me too, none of us is in this alone. And may the world know a God who sent his son and may they know it through our witness and our testimony so that every time they wonder, every time they are looking, they look at the people in Northridge Church and they'd say, no, there's something going out about a God who loves us so much that he would never abandon us, he'd never run away. And may we come back from time to time and tell good stories of the God who in us and through us is reaching out and telling the world, I'm with you, I love you, and I understand. We pray in the name of Jesus. And we all said, amen. Thank you for having me, Northbridge. Hope I see you soon. I can't stay, please take me any place today. Oh, I'm going to San Diego. Here I come, San Francisco. Won't be long, Sacramento.